Our scripture today comes from Psalm 139, starting from verse 13 to the end of the, the chapter, verse 24. This is a continuation of the psalm from last week as well. You can turn there in your Bibles, but we also have it projected for you overhead. Here is Psalm 139, starting from verse 13. I'll read it for us, and let's give our attention and reverence, for this is God's word. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. Would you prepare your hearts now for the preaching of God's word? Let's give our thanks to God as we turn in the scriptures to Psalm 139. Before we launch right into the second part, I want to ask you to join me in welcoming back Pastor Dinko from his sabbatical. I actually wanted you to stay up here, but you ran away. So let's welcome him back. Uh, I think that Dinko ran away because he saw me kiss Pastor Jimmy last week. <laughs> that was very unsolicited, unplanned. But I am just overcome with thanks be to God for worship together. Uh, Psalm 139, starting at verse 13. Last week, we started looking at the incommunicable attributes of God. What is that? These are attributes of God that cannot be transferred, shared, passed on. They are reserved for God exclusively. They cannot be replicated. And so last week, we look at God and we worship God for his omniscience. We also, uh, we also looked at his omnipresence, that he is all present in every sphere, at every moment in every day. So today we look at the third. This is now we come to the all-powerful God, the omnipotence of God, the omnipotence of God. Trace with me starting at verse 13 to 16. Look at these beautiful verses, how they flow together. The psalmist expresses God 
you are so powerful, you preceded the beginning of my formation, my existence. God, it's not like your power goes out. It's not like your power wanes. It's not like it fluctuates. It's not like the stock market curves. It's not like our moods. God, your infinite, limitless power precedes the beginning of my life and all of life. For verse 13, you formed and knitted my inward parts. I think he is speaking about his physical body. By the power of God, you formed and fashioned and knitted all of my inward parts. Verse 14, he says, my soul knows it well. By God's power, our physical bodies were made. By God's power, our infinite souls were also created as well. Such is the demonstration of God's power. An incommunicable power. Exclusive power. Reserved only for God. I think some several years ago, even before the pandemic hit, uh, w- one of the members of CCSE came up to me, Pastor, have you heard about singularity? Have you heard about this Silicon Valley movement called singularity? I said, what is that? Well, he says, well, all the wealth and all the smarts and all the technology along with hopefully the creation of artificial intelligence that's supposedly supposed to get exponentially smarter. I mean, those of you who grew up in the 80s think of Terminator, yes. Singularity, as I understand, is a movement where you can't quite mimic God's omnipotence at the creation of life out of nothing. Like, nobody's going to do that. Like, everything bursts into being out of nothing. That is the act of the power of God. But we can attempt to seek the endlessness or the everlasting life to extend it as long as possible. So a guy by the name of Raymond Kurzweil, inventor, it's called a futurist, uh, mastermind engineer at Google, wrote a book in 2006 entitled, The Singularity is Near, in which, quote, we will transcend all the limitations of our human biology. According to Kurzweil, he intends to live for hundreds of years and actually to bring about the resurrection of the dead including his own dead father. For Elon Musk, this effort involves an apparently humble proposition of streaming AI into all of our brains through a uh, network. It's called a neural link. Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal, major investor in Facebook. He offers... Quote, a singularity or bust scenario to all of life. This particular movement, it's unironically ideological as it resembles the Christian religion that it so often derides because you have serious believers with serious beliefs with a serious devotion to things should always just get better with time. That's called progression. And they're seeking immortality. Now, if you stop and think about it, if you ever wondered why tech is getting into all kinds of things to do with healthcare, 
Who will be the richest? Who will be the most famous? This is a naked power grab for anyone who can come up with, I found a way where you can never have to die. But this psalm expresses a kind of power that only belongs to God. Creation and the beginning of all of life out of nothing. And also God does promise somehow he can extend it into the forever after. Look at verse 16. Who has formed our unformed substance? And we talk about genius visionaries. We talk about people who can see the future and project it and plan and have all the milestones and get all the resources and the right personnel to achieve that future goal. Well, here's the perfect visionary of them all. God saw you before there was nothing, unformed substance, saw what you would be, and then actually brought it to perfect fulfillment and embodiment, at least before the fall. The power of God is that he can see something into the future, but of course he's not trapped in the present, he is in the future as well, and he can bring it about to its perfect completion. This is why, again, back in verse 14, the psalmist is just overcome with praise and wonder, not that he was made by mass production, this was not automated production, but he himself has been intricately woven. You know, that language, intricately woven, knit together in the most inward parts. You and I have been personally crafted, handmade by God. This is the omnipotence of God. This is why God is praiseworthy. This is why we ought to worship him into forever after. Because of his power on display, namely in the creation and the sustenance and even the resurrection of life. Each and every tissue, cell, organ, connection. There's a 2015 study that shows that coiled DNA acts like a yo-yo string. I have no idea what they're talking about. This just sounded neat and intricate off of Google. DNA acts like a yo-yo string. Everything carefully, purposefully woven together to not only jumpstart life, but sustain it for a lifetime. Fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm going to give you exhibit A. Next picture, please. I was going over the slides in the back, and one of the guys who work here at HIU asked me, who is that? I said, that's me. He said, where has he gone? <laughs> Some of you might think you're being polite. You look at this face. Say, that's a face only a mother can love. No, actually, Psalm 139 says, God can love this face. God made this face. And I asked for permission from my own teenage daughters this week. And I said, you know, I want to share this little episode. Because, you know, they said yes. Within plain earshot, I've heard one of them say to the other, well, ha, you have the same nose as dad. And she was dogging on her because one of them has mom's nose, the other one has dad's nose. 
And I went up to them and said, can I share this story? And the one who has my nose said, thanks, Dad. You just reminded me I have your nose. When they get more brutal and they go at it with each other, they go more direct. I've actually heard them say, when you have kids, I hope they have severe eczema like you. Ah, that's brutal, huh? Now, this is brutal, isn't it? The reason I talk about this is, if you thought you had self-image issues when you were an adolescent, when you become a parent, you see the replica of yourself in your kids, and the way that they dog on one another, the way that they dog on you, you better come to some resolution about your, the way that God made you. Now, here's what God is saying. <laughs> Fearfully and wonderfully made, intricately woven, Because of the actual power of God. You know, back to the sanctuary of the scriptures here. Here's two staggering aspects to the omniscience of God, to the omnipresence of God, and the omnipotence of God. Two aspects. One, it has no beginning. Second, it has no end. To all three attributes. His all-knowing, his all-presence, his all-power... No limitations. They are infinite. This is why in verse 16, if we look at it again, the sweeping coverage. Please, let's go to verse 16. Yes. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The sweeping coverage of the power of God. At one end of human life is what? Conception. At the other... Other end is the day of death. According to this verse, the psalmist is saying, all my days were written and ordained by God before you live one of those days. The day you were born was not up to you. And I'm sorry to say, ultimately, no matter what you think, what you think you can do, The day you die is really not ultimately up to you. You cannot die one day earlier or one day later than what has already been somewhat by his power ordained. This blasts all illusions of human control, does it not? How much of our lives really lie under our control? Especially as the world slowly moves out of this pandemic. Haven't you and I realized how much of it doesn't lie under control? I mean, if life were up to me, I would never lose. I would never be frustrated. I would never get tired. I would never grow sick. My family would be perfect. All my friends would like me forever. I'd make as much money as I just could imagine. I would be healthy. And certainly the day of death or separation or loss would never come. But from the very beginning of your life, my friends, that inception point, that starting point, all the way to your end, and every single day in between, God saw it, God purposed it, God planned it, God made it, God started it, God ordains it, God has a plan, God upholds every single day, it's all because it lies under his sovereign power. This is what the psalmist is trying to express, just in a couple of these verses. 
This is why earliest Christian believers and ancient Jews until this day who follow Jesus, not another agenda or some distorted version of Christianity, have always actively worked against abortion and active euthanasia. Let me say that again. This is why early Christians, all the way till today, have always stood up for those who are thrown out, abandoned, the poor. What made Christians stand out in the Roman Empire was they would rescue and care for the babies who were thrown out. Why would this be the case? Although this can be so darn inconvenient. Although this can be irrational. Although it makes no economic sense sometimes. It could be even traumatic and painful. But you see, to do anything about the beginning or the end of life is to violate the very rights of God. To get in the way about the beginning or the end of life, I'm saying in principle here, is to get in the way of the power and the purposes and the glory of God. Would you please listen to this scripturally, not politically? Psalm 139 was written long before culture wars in American politics. The scriptures have Jeremiah the prophet and John the Baptist being known and called and moved by the Holy Spirit from the mother's womb. God gives a clear and glorious revelation of the infinite and intrinsic value and sanctity of life. In one life. Of that much worth because it was done by his sovereign power. And just as much as we must listen to this scripturally, working against abortion and active euthanasia, we must also listen to all of the rest of the scriptures that speak of respecting and welcoming and fully including and serving and protecting and pursuing equality and justice for all lives long before racial and gender wars took place, long before there are any notions or misaccusations of critical race theories or Marxism, either way. You see in some, look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. The psalmist says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. This is just praise and wonder. This is just the worship of God, not only for his omniscience, not only for his omnipresence, but because of his omnipotence, omnipotence. I had to check with my wife, actually, was it this morning? Actually, no, I'm sorry, I checked with Pastor Dinko today. Is it called a sonogram still? He says ultrasound. I don't know, is it a synonym? I'm lost. I don't know, it's been that long. But you know, when was the last time you looked at an ultrasound or a sonogram? And you see what is almost unreal to you. There are baby lives curled up. That's exactly the language of the psalmist. A rolled up substance, that's an embryo. That unformed rolled up substance, that's the embryo. And God, you are actively working from that very moment, even before I even came to existence. I think one of the great lessons of looking at ultrasound is it might take about nine months for the lesson to sink in. If God is the one who ultimately fashions and creates and cares for that little baby, what makes us think we take over that job once the baby is out? 
What makes us ever think we ultimately take over that job once the baby does come out? Now, you see, last week, we asked and answered this question. How can an all-knowing, all-present God make us feel nothing but threatened and troubled? Instead, how does David start to feel that he can ask for his absolute scrutiny? Well, today we're going to ask the question, how can the omnipotence of God be comforting rather than crushing? The answer is right here in verse 18. Verse 18, the second half. I awake and I am still with you. This verse, along with verse 10 last week, unlocks, I believe, this entire psalm. Verse 10 said, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. These two verses together explain the entirety of this psalm because here's what he's saying. After all the fight or flight panic syndrome you will run into when you meet a real God. After all the dread and darkness when you know that God sees and knows everything about you. Here in verse 18 he says, but I awake after all that darkness. I'm still found to be in the presence of God. There's a new morning after a nightmare night. There's a resurrection after wreckage. I'm accepted after complete and cosmic exposure. This little verse, along with verse 10, are what I would call gospel lyrics breaking through from another world, from another age. You see, listen close. The only way the psalmist or any religious person in this room can handle God knowing everything about you, God being everywhere you've gone and will go, and God being all-powerful, the only way that doesn't crush you but comfort you is because of this verse in verse 10. In other words, if you don't have this verse or verse 10, I don't know what hope or confidence you can run to. But here is a burst, as I would say, an intrusion of a gospel reality that is about to happen. Even within the Old Testament, they get a glimpse. So again, we ask the question, how many psalms are ultimately about Jesus Christ? The answer is 150. Every single psalm inspired and written by the Holy Spirit through men is ultimately pointing to the end of the puzzle, who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And apart from Jesus Christ, you really can't fully understand what this psalm means. So, to read and understand and worship God in the psalms, of course, you should sing and pray these psalms to Jesus Christ. I think that's obvious. Christ Central Church, how should you read and interpret and worship God through this psalm? Oh, I can sing and pray this psalm to the Lord Jesus Christ. But more wondrous and praiseworthy might be to add another question. Could Jesus Christ himself have sung or prayed this psalm? The first question, which we should all do, is how can I sing or pray this to Jesus? The second question is to add the thought, could Jesus Christ himself 
have prayed or sung Psalm 139. And so now we get to the most disturbing, troubling part. Verses 19 to 22 that I got to be honest, every preacher is tempted to avoid. They just want to skip it. But we're going to have to deal with it. Here's what it reads. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God, O oh men of bloodshed. Depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Let's not skip it. Let's deal with it. How do we deal with this? It's good we're dealing with it. This actually might be the most honest, realistic part of the whole psalm. For some of you, this is the part that you relate to the most. Because if you are hurt, you seek to hurt the other person back. If you are conspired and speaking maliciously against, you will turn around to conspire and speak back at that person. In other words, if you are hated, everyone in this room has the most natural instinct. It is the most normal MO behavior to turn around and hate that person in return, maybe disproportionately where you want to hate your enemy and the enemy of God with a complete hatred. Oh, don't you see how realistic the Bible really is? David was surrounded by a bunch of malicious enemies who wanted him dead, and they hated his God. And here in these four or five verses, he does pray, Oh Lord, I know you are a perfect holy judge. You will bring justice. You're going to make everything right. So therefore, oh God, I hate my enemies. I hate yours. Pour out your hatred upon them and make it right, which God surely will. Which God surely will. Oh, he certainly will. But back to the question. Could Jesus have prayed these verses better? Back to the question. Could Jesus have sung or prayed this psalm? Yes. And he could have done it much better than David ever did. Because here's how Jesus prayed these very verses. Instead of, Father, pour out all your hatred upon your enemies and mine, I want you to turn all that hate back down on me. See, Jesus came to sing a new psalm, a whole new gospel prayer. Father, instead of slay the wicked, get rid of them out of my sight. Give them exactly what they deserve. No, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing and give me what they deserve. My friends, do you know the marvel, the dynamic of the scriptures? Of how David prays an imprecatory psalm here in 139. Imprecatory just means invoking judgment down from God. Where Jesus then came and offered himself in an intercessory prayer. Invoking mercy from God while he receives the judgment. You see, David's greater, greater, greater son came to demonstrate the most astonishing power of all. And do you know how divine power works in the gospel? Do you know what is the most powerful display of the power of God? It was for Jesus to lose all his powers. It was for Jesus to lay down all his rights. 
put down all of his defenses, become so beatable, become so bleedable, become so vulnerable, become someone who was so mocked and mistreated that apparently he was defeated. Do you know that such is the power of God at work in the universe that you can stack all the odds against him and it looks like it's impossible now. It's impossible. People aren't going to take wages on this one anymore. It's done. It's closed. But this is the power of God that he arose invincible after everyone said it's over. Oh, could Jesus have come to sing these and pray these verses much better? Indeed he did. You see, look at all the hatred, which is our MO. This is natural religion. I don't need to teach you to do this because this is what we do. If someone hates you and is bad on you, speaks evil of you, works against you, even the slightest light sometimes, what do you do? What do you do? I don't need to tell you to tell you what to do. You've been doing your entire life. You come back and say, I will make sure to get you back. But look at what Jesus came to do. How he defers and transforms even all the hatred contained in the Old Testament. Oh, some people say, oh, I see. Pastor Hell, the, the reason I have a struggle, if you're studying the Bible, which I'm glad you are, there's such a contradiction. It's like God in the Old Testament seems so different. Cruel, nasty, trigger happy, like misogynistic, homophobic, hateful, all of these things. By the way, you can really only get that caricature of God in the Old Testament because of biased summaries that you're probably reading online, not the scriptures themselves. You say, oh, God is like this over here, but God in the New Testament, I like that one. He's just much more nice and kind and gentle. No, it's not a contradiction. This is a divine consolation. God in the Old Testament was never easily triggered. He was not quick to anger. He did not cancel and condemn without many, 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 many chances. Given over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. If you really do read and get to know the God of the scriptures... He has never been overly sensitive or trigger happy. He is exceedingly, mind-blowingly gracious and patient. Trigger happy is our current cancel culture. It is nothing like our God. And God who is totally holy and consistent, here's what he did. Here's what he did to transform all that hatred in the Old Testament through Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what's going on in the masterful gospel summary according to Romans chapter 3, which is probably the best book in a logical way presenting the gospel. 
Here's what Apostle Paul is saying. God, for him to love and save his own enemies, in no way compromises character of holiness and justice. But he poured out what you and I deserve on Jesus, his own son, so that those who have faith and trust and follow Jesus, his own son, we get what Jesus, the perfect son, deserves. So whereby his justice is satisfied and his mercy and grace gets poured out. Whereas his holiness is fully, fully met, but his mercy and life-giving salvation gets poured out. And this is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to sing Psalm 139 even better than David ever could. Because as I remind you, friends, to never let you go in that darkness, God shut down all the lights at midday, and he let go of his own son at the cross so that he could never lose you in the darkness. Today, what we find is, while David was fearfully and wonderfully made in his mother's womb, Jesus got torn apart while his mother watched. Jesus, who has no grievous way in him, not one evil, wicked way in him, he was led into perishing so that all those who have grievous, anxious, even evil wickedness in us, in us God can lead us into the way everlasting. There is no greater power at work, not only to give you life and to call the number of your days, even before, even before you live one of them, but perhaps the greatest power at work in the gospel is this. If you have experienced the forgiveness and salvation and love of God in Jesus for you, not giving you what you deserve, but you get what Jesus deserves. Jesus gets what you deserve and you get what Jesus deserves. When this happens, he unleashes the greatest power in the whole world. And it's astonishing. And the power goes like this. You can pray for and love your enemies. You can pray for and reconcile love and even forgive your enemies. This is what Jesus actually came to bring. So we close and we pray this together. Verses 23 and 24 of Psalm 139. Let's pray this together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Pray with me now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray. Holy Spirit. The one who is all-knowing, all-present, and omnipotent. See if there be any hateful, grievous ways in us. And would you touch us, transform us, and lead us again in a way that follows after Jesus, that shows Jesus lives in me. The old me has died and is dying, but Christ has come to set me free. Oh, Lord, hear us, we pray. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.